I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I am so honored to be joined today by George Saunders, writer and teacher who's finally written a craft book that's called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, in which four Russians give a masterclass on writing, reading, and life. George, I feel like I finally got to sit in on the MFA class of my dreams. Like I always wanted to go, um, and you gave me the space in this book to, to feel like I was there. Oh, I'm so oh, I'm so glad you feel that way. That was definitely the intention. You know, I'd been teaching this class for 20 years at Syracuse and um, uh, just kind of, you know, sort of towards the maybe the, you know, the endish of my teaching career, just to think, um, wouldn't it be nice to kind of boil it all down to its essence? And uh, so, yeah, so it was really a, a, it was, a, it was a, in a weird way. It was kind of a, a walk down memory lane of all the, you know, all the different classes, classes. Sorry. Sorry. I don't know what that of all the different classes where I taught the, uh, the thing and all the different times of year and stuff. So it was really a, a labor of love. Love that. Tell me, tell me how you chose the seven stories by the four Russian writers who you cover in this book and what made you want to write about those particular ones. Right. So in a typical semester, we would do about 40 stories, you know, so I couldn't obviously couldn't be that. Uh, and I, from the beginning, I had the idea that we have to include the text itself. So you didn't have to, you know, go off and find it before you participated. And so um, it kind of became a question of, um, you know, scanning back and asking myself, which stories have taught the best over the years. And it was actually kind of easy because when you know, at Syracuse, we get something like 600 applications for six spots. So the students are just off the charts already. Uh, in a group like that, you know, when the class comes alive, you know, you, mm. you know, when you've kind of hit that artistic nerve. Uh, and what that what that means is that they, they're all finding um, potential. Uh, they're all finding in the story we're reading potential answers to the big problems in their own work. You know, you just, you could just feel that the, the room just comes alive. So there was probably about 10 of those, maybe, you know, 11, 12, still too many for a book. <laughs> so then it became really complicated. Um, the question became how, which stories 
um, you know, kind of would allow me the chance to say what I wanted to say so that I could then weave it into a kind of a meta narrative. So the whole book didn't repeat itself. It, it had a kind of a shape of its own. So that was everything I do in writing is kind of a Rubik's cube thing that <laughs> I solve by going through it a thousand times, you know, just putting it this way and changing it. So it was kind of a long process, but I think in the end it was a seven stories that they're not even really my favorites um, necessarily, but they just teach the, the best, you know, they're the best um, kind of <laughs> best kind of corpses to take to the morgue and then open up, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I love how you, you write that. That's a real, that's a real good way of selling the yeah. book, I guess. <laughs> Show me all of the insides. Um, I love how you say that these yeah. stories will give um, your students or the reader the technical means to become defiantly themselves, which is the lesson I take away from you reading these stories and then writing your own work. Yeah, I mean, you know, with students as good as ours, they're already amazing. They're, they've always been the best writers in their classes and in their circle of friends. They're, some of them have published already. So the only thing left to do is to try to somehow, and it's a really interesting process, urge them into that top 1%. You know, I always like I make a corny metaphor of a mountain climber. You know, the, the world-class mountain climbers they have to do a lot of slog work to get up to that last thing where they distinguish themselves from all the other mountain climbers. So that's what we're about. And it's mostly... I would say it's psychological work, you know, mm -hmm. at that level, it's, you're really trying to have the talent for having talent. You already have the talent. Now, how good are you at managing your own neuroses and obstructions so that you can get up into that top 1%. So it's not just say, saying, you know, show, don't tell. I mean, it's really getting to know the individual student and then sometimes even playing a little mind game, you know, um, <laughs> if, if they're coasting, you kind of ignore them, you know, <laughs> or you, or you, so, so it's really complicated, but um, one way that has turned out to be pretty good is to read these Russians. And, you know, it's funny cause you, I don't, I'm not sure really why analyzing a story technically should help you as a writer, but it does. I don't, I'm just, it's for me, it's just an article of faith. If you go deeply into the technical part and come out of it clean, like, I don't think you want to say, I'll, I'm going to steal this exact trick. But somehow the process of doing that causes the the stories to get into your artistic body or something like that, maybe. And, and I love that you clearly spent a lot of time um, contemplating which translation of the stories you wanted to use. And then the essays at the end feel like your translation of the translation. Yeah. And can I be honest? I, I didn't spend a lot of time okay. on the translations. What I did, I mean, because I'm no, no, because I'm a, you know, I'm a working writer. So when yes. I was putting the class together, I did maybe a couple of days of like looking at different things. And then for 20 years, I've been teaching the same version. So at the end, when I was about to write this, I thought maybe I should do a systematic review of all the translations. And I was like, on what basis? You, you know, I don't read Russian. So I thought, OK, <laughs> I'm going to confess that in the book and say, you know, even if this is the crappiest translation available, it's still pretty good in English, or or we can treat it as if it just was in the New Yorker by an American and analyze it that way. Um, but yeah, but then, then you, no matter what, though, you, you see that um, you, when you're reading a translation, you're just not reading the original, you're reading some other kind of weird thing. But it does kind of alert you to how much our experiences, readers is about word choice, you know, uh, in some places in the book, I offer five or six different translations and it's, they're really different, different stories, you know? So for a way, the, the book became for me a way of, um, you know, I'd been spending a lot of time online, of course, as we all have. And, um, 
I noticed that my reading, not really my reading comprehension, but my reading glory had gone down. Like I, I didn't see the scenes as vividly as I used to. I didn't, those associated smells weren't coming and all that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, so this book was a way of kind of recalibrating that. And I feel like a much deeper, happier reader than I was when I started. Me too, just from reading the book. So thank do you. Get, when you read, do you get um, sense, sense experience off the page? Like, uh, I don't, I mean, it's not strong, but I mean, like you, you see little vistas and you, Of course, you know. of course. Um, yeah, they're, they're too hard to articulate, but they are, they are there. Yes, yeah. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? Say like a coup going on in your country or um, the realization that all of our systems are corrupt and <laughs> broken? Um, BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. And there is a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. Areas. You can log on to your account at any time and send a message to your counselor and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule a weekly video or phone session so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's also more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily. Visit BetterHelp.com, that's BetterHelp, and join the over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer for the Maris Review listeners, get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Maris, M-A-R-I-S. I love how in the final Tolstoy story, you do show us five or six translations and it becomes an exercise about what the reader writer wants it to be. It's all about th that yeah. choice. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's what I love about stories is they're, you know, they're, they're very participatory. I mean, if I say, uh, a handsome fellow walked up a road to the White House. Well, you're the reader. You have to supply your version of a handsome fellow, a version of a road, and a version of a house. So much more so than in a movie, you're already in it. You're participating. I'm not writing it. We're, you know, in a sense, we're writing it. Uh, and then that just exponentially multiplies as you go pages and pages into the story. Yeah. A another thing that I found incredibly comforting throughout this whole book is your hammering home that all art begins with intuitive preference and that you are the best judge of what works especially when you're revising your own work or energetically messing with your your work and i i don't think i had ever had that hit home to me that um you're own gut feeling is basically what guides you yeah and and you know with the proviso that you've done a ton of reading before so right. that your your judgment is is refined and you know but i think it's true you know that um 
you think you, you think about when you go to uh, hear music or something or or dance or something. In a way, a lot of your fun is watching somebody else delight themselves. You know, mm-hmm. w- w- uh, watching somebody else occupy that iconic space we talked about, where they're you don't know why. Why is Patty Smith doing that? You know, why is she? I saw her in Rome once, and she was literally crawling around the stage, and she had ten thousand people wrapped because she was somewhere that we wanted to be. You know, so I think that's uh, maybe in, in MFA programs, it's sometimes undersold that it's about joy, actually, and it is about being defiantly yourself and being quirky and weird. And the craft is really—you could understand it as just how do I really be myself. And this, this idea of, of radical preference um, means, you know, most of us who are reading fanatics and have been since we were little kids, if you go into a bookstore and pick up a book and just open it anywhere, you know within a few lines what you think. Mm-hmm. You, 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 you haven't articulated it, but you know it. I'm saying that that's the, the gland or whatever or the muscle that we use in, in writing. That's, I, do, I actually do an exercise in class where I take the first paragraph of five stories from some literary journal it doesn't matter which one uh i block out the writer's names pass it out and then i say okay i'm gonna leave the room uh when i come back i want you guys to have ranked these these this prose so i just go and i don't say on what basis i just say rank it you know mm-hmm. and, and i come back and everybody is they're aflame with judgment you know they've, they've got their <laughs> list and then we put them on the board and usually usually nobody's listed the same, you know, then we have a nice fight about that, you know, why, why, why. <laughs> and what, what comes out of it is that people, you, you judge very quickly and very deftly actually, uh, without any articulation, you know what you like. Uh, I remember one guy said, I just put this one last because there's too many descriptions of plants. I'm like, really? Plant? <laughs> but, but he had an, a, literally an aversion, an aversion to a description of plant. So, part of what I try to do with my students is, is just say, that's real. That's actually an incredible gift that you feel so strongly. Let's learn to turn up that little voice in our head that prefers or dislikes things. You know, it, that's the one, one, my students are always so nice and they're such like type A lovely people. And I say, this is the one time in your life when you get to be a really obnoxious, <laughs> you know, opinionated uh, person who, who just likes what you like. And, and I, appreciate that for the first story you offer, which is In the Cart by Anton Chekhov, that you stop us um, almost paragraph by paragraph sometimes and really make us think (laughs) about what, how we're reacting, what we're noticing, why, what we want to know. You talk about the Hollywood version when we talk about what does this story appear to want to be? Yeah, I mean, one of the big revelations in my writing life was, uh, you know, when I was younger, I thought I just had to be really smart and tell you what, how much I knew, and then you would be impressed and buy the book. And then I had a revelation where I realized that a story is really a, a linear temporal phenomenon. It just takes place a line at a time. You know, you you mostly the stories that we love, you mostly read them once. You know, uh, so you, you are at a certain place. At every split second during that reading, you are you, you're in a state of elation or resistance or whatever. Um, that's really the entire thing of being a writer or also being a critic, you know, is to have a have a, an authentic, uncoaxed reaction, uh, and then notice it, bless it, and then articulate it. That's it. And it's and then what I was kind of interested to find is it's not just 
reading is life. You know, if you, you go to a party, you have a reaction and <laughs> the, the, the difference I would say between a functional person and a dysfunctional person is the functional person notices her reaction and blesses it. You know, she doesn't say, oh, I must be wrong. You know, these other people know more than me. I must be wrong. No, she says, I'm feeling this. All right, I'm going to start from there. And then as a critic, you learn to articulate those and then interrogate them, you know. But so that's the first story. The idea is let's just let's just admit we start a story with nothing in our head. Right. And then even after the first page, something's going on up there, you know, that's pleasurable. But there are also little micro, you know, like weather systems of resistance and difficulty and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, I was a, a from a kind of a I was an engineer when I was in college. And I, so I kind of taught myself to read. And this way of reading really is liberating because you can read anything. You know, you just have to be ready to see how you feel about it. Yeah, I, I imagine that the short story form is particularly useful to teach because of the frugality of it, that you have a lot of instances when you say he meant to do that. <laughs> Thinking about um, what is included and what uh, is left behind on the cutting room floor um, is really helpful. Yeah, and the I mean the assumption of the of the story form is that everything's there for a reason. And one of the things I say in the book though is that we have to be careful when we talk about intention. Uh, a lot of young writers think that they have to know everything before they start and know everything that's in there after they're done. And my experience is that it's much more magical than that. You know, you go through a story and you're doing literally tens of thousands of things that you know you may or may not be aware of. The intention. Sorry, I don't know. If it's a, the intention is really just that moment at the end when you read it for the last time and go, yeah, that's it. You know, that, then everything in there, even the hidden stuff is quote unquote intended. So I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a former engineer and I tend to, <laughs> I tend to approach things fairly analytically, but um, then in my actual work, there's the analytical core and there's the crazy ass stuff on top, the ornamentation. And my thought is that the if you have solid technical stuff like cause and effect and, you know, that kind of stuff um, that frees you up to be crazier on the surface, you know? Yeah, um, and a lot of this stuff is really just, it's looking at the physics of the form. You know, if I say uh, once upon a time, well, you lean in and there's already some expectation in your head for what I'm going to do next. And if I, if I go once upon a time, it was a regular day and that's it, <laughs> you know, you're kind of bummed out. So the, the minute I say I'm going to tell you a story, a whole set of expectations arise, which is what the writer has to work with, basically. George, tell me why we collectively as writers have such a hard time developing um, or talking about rising action and incorporating it into our work. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's, in my opinion, it's the absolute hardest thing to do. It's just, it's just the magical X factor that a person either gets or doesn't. And I don't think you can teach it. I don't think, I mean, maybe you can, but uh, if somebody has it, everything they do gets elevated, you know? So basically, I, I think you could say most stories exist in this form. There's the way things usually are, you know, uh, he'd always been a quiet fellow who uh, had never, uh, had a friend, you know, whatever. Okay. So that's the stasis. That means that's how it's been up until now. Automatically, you're expecting that he's going to get a friend. That, that's just the way that the mind works, you know? So rising action is 
than making him get a friend in a way that makes the story meaningful, you know, mm -hmm. but it's really hard. And, I, and I've had students who've submitted really brilliant 300 page novels where nothing happens, actually, you know, it, it doesn't mean there's not activity, but nothing, there's no rising action, you know. So for me, it's kind of like in songwriting, you can say all you want about it. If, if a person has an incredible gift melody, they're going to be a great songwriter, you know. Uh, and how do you get it? I don't know, you know. So, so yeah, rising action is the is the hardest thing. It's I always say it's like um, most of what we write is the action of putting a, a big pot of water on the stove, you know. And most of us can do that. The rising action is actually is getting the water to boil. <laughs> but I still don't know how to do it. I, it's still you know it has to it has to remain to be seen, kind of. And and that's why your inclusion of the singers by Turgenev. Um, is really helpful because one, you get the student reactions um, and they're saying, these are a lot of descriptions and they don't always make any sense. And what's going on here? It's just nice to be reminded that um, the greatest, greatest greats uh, also had their flaws. And, and it took him a while to, to get to the singing portion of, of the story. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that should be encouraging for writers is that even if you have a problem in a story, or even if you have a problem as a writer, uh, you're not going to be able to just avoid it or cut it out. Usually, or sometimes if you're really good, the problem can actually become a way to complete the story. Uh, you know, and so the first step again is to admit it, like just like as a person, you know, if you have a certain character flaw or, or trait or whatever that, that seems to be getting in your way, if you just say, yeah, you know, I do this too much, or I do this too little, um, I'm this way, then you're already about halfway to a solution. And sometimes, you know, I know certain people who have excesses in their personality <laughs> that at some magical moment they've accepted, you know, they've accepted. Mm -hmm. And then they've let their life grow around that excess in a kind of organic way. And it becomes one of their charms, you know. Right. So I think this is... You know, the longer I teach writing, the more I see that writing is everything. It's about it's the same as everything. You know, um, if you can learn a lesson on the page, that lesson does have a real life corollary. And the, the overall direction, as I as far as I can tell, is is you know to become so confident that you accept everything. You know, mm -hmm. in yourself and in others, and you say, okay. That's how it is. My story has this problem on page eight. All right. Kind of cheerfully, like, all right, we're going to work <laughs> with that. Um, that way you can, you can, you know, you can not only solve it, but you can enlist it in your cause. Whereas the other path, which I was definitely on as a younger writer is to say, my story is no good. Therefore I suck. You know, there's something <laughs> wrong with me. I'm the, you know, I'm the one person who can't do this. Uh, that's no way to, to live, you know? <laughs> and, and, and you do talk about that in relation to um, finding what, your voice uniquely is. And I, I think so many of us try to write like other people and uh, forget that uh, we are uniquely uh, involved in deciding what comes out of our mouths and pens. Yeah, but you know, I also think, I, I, I think that's a sign that someone is a good writer because if you, if you have a good ear, then you have fallen in love with a couple writers in your life mm. you know if, if someone comes to me and says i i've never really liked a book but i want to be a writer i'm like that's not gonna work <laughs> yeah. but if someone is in you know totally enthralled to eudora wealthy or david foster wallace i'm like okay i can work with that because nobody ultimately wants to be you know eudora wealthy's backup singer i mean you right. you know you, you want to go past so if somebody is 
if somebody's inclined to imitate someone, that means they can, which means they have a good ear. So that, so that can be worked with. You know, we all, I mean, I don't know any writer who didn't go through that phase that of which they're embarrassed where they were doing bad Hemingway or bad whoever. Um, but what I find at Syracuse is if somebody's in that mode, they really don't want, they know it, you know, and they don't want to be there. And they, they know it because there's a gap between their actual lived experience that they've paid so dearly for their heartbreaks and their, you know, moments of joy. There's a gap between that and what's on the page. And that is so, if you love writing, isn't that the most painful thing, yes. you know, where there's you, there's you and the stuff on the page is not you. What the hell, you know, how can that be? It's maddening. Um, but, but that energy, that energy is what we use to find voice, you know? And one of the things I say in the book is, you know, you, you we always think that finding voice means standing on top of a mountaintop and declaiming, you know, in this totally original style. But for me, it, it was giving myself permission to pare back, you know, to, to cut out banalities and cliche habits of speech and, even make the, the, the prose a little weird looking, you know, yes. that's, uh, you know, a, a valid way to find voice also. Yeah. And you talk about writers producing the necessary energy to, well, you say begin dancing, which is a <laughs> lovely metaphor and it, and it gets right at the heart of what we're trying to do with art. Yeah. Flannery O'Connor said an amazing thing. I, I won't, I'll mangle it, but she says something like, uh, a writer can choose what she writes, but she can't choose what she makes live. So, you know, we, we all go through that phase as young writers where we're designing our career. You know, I'm going to be this person. Um, and somehow art doesn't really like that. It, it wants you to blunder and discover uh, where your energy is. And it might be that the energy, you know, the, the style of writing in which you're the most energetic is not one that you at first even like, you know, you, you write... Um, I always say it's like if you were a dedicated Shostakovich fan and you only wrote somber string quartets and whenever you wrote them, everybody fell asleep, you know, but then <laughs> one day you're all depressed and you picked up an accordion and played a polka and the whole town starts dancing. Well, the, you know, there's a valuable yeah. lesson in that. And the question is, will you, you know, will you take the lesson? And most of us, if you know, you, you got the accordion in your hand and you see everybody dancing, you're like, huh, all right, well, let me, let me try to understand myself in that new way. So I don't just, you know, bore everybody the rest of my life. And, and I love that even the, finding the beauty in mundane moments can be enough to make a short story, quote unquote, work. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the highest level of skill, actually. You know, a lot of my stuff has got a lot. I mean, it's almost like I always have one death per, per story, you know, <laughs> and uh, then you re look at Chekhov and some of these some of these stories, there's nothing. I mean, in the cart, a yeah. lady goes to get groceries, you know, that's it. But, but the whole of human, you know, longing is in there and loneliness is in that story. So that's something I'm trying to keep in mind is, uh, you know, while at the same time, keeping in mind the previous thing, it might be that I'm just somebody who to get the necessary energy has to kill somebody off every story. You know, <laughs> it might just be that way. But, but I, I think that's, you know, as but, but, you know, as an older person, one of the real blessings, and I'm always so happy when I meet a young writer because they have a, a life ahead of them that is going to be more interesting because they write. Uh, as things happen in your life, uh, they, they will find a home in, in working. And the problems you have on the page are the same ones you're going to have off, you know. So I, I love the fact that, um, you know, at a point in life where 
it's very easy to become settled, you know, and sad, self-satisfied. Mm-hmm. Every day I get to go in and work on a story that is so ornery, you know, no story wants to be told what to do. So you're, you're continually put in the position of the handmaid to the story. You know, you're like, okay, I'm here. I am 62 years old. I am a tenured professor. However, I submit to your authority, you know, and that's really good practice for, for being out in the world. Absolutely. <laughs> I, you address, um, especially towards the conclusion of the book, the big question, like the capital letters, like what fiction does. And um, it, it's mm-hmm. clearly not as simple as it makes you a more empathetic person overall done. <laughs> but but it does change. Our yeah, I, w- I wish. Yeah, that would be a really like just make people yeah. read Tolstoy and come out like better people. Yeah, you just just tie them up and re- tie them up and read aloud to them. It'd be kind of like a like a clockwork like orange MFA Guantanamo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I mean I think that for me the biggest thing is uh, I, I think it as I say in the book it does a lot of things and there's a kind of a trope of writers talking about writing where they you know, they, they sing its praises and, and claim it as sort of this absolute medicine. And I don't disagree with that, but I think we have to be a little humble about it because, you know, there's been great writing in the world forever. And there's also been genocide and oppression and cruelty forever. So the way I understand it, it's a mitigating force, you know, um, just like friendship or, uh, or dancing, you know, or whatever. It, it's something that human beings do to somehow root out the delusion in themselves. And, 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 and I think it does actually make us, it, it breaks down borders between people. Mm-hmm. So that's real. Uh, it, and it shouldn't be forgotten about, but neither should it be overestimated. You know, we have to have a, you know, because really, I, I think what fiction really does at the end of the day is it, it, it just reminds us that connection is possible. You know, if I'm reading uh, a, a Tolstoy story from, uh, you know, over a hundred years ago, and I get choked up in my study and I pause a minute and I look out the window and slightly resolve to be more attentive to my family, for example, which has certainly happened to me. Uh, that's real, you know, that's pretty amazing. And then of course the effect fades, it doesn't last forever, but it was real in, in that time. And I think a good life is made up of those kind of small inflections, you know, that we voluntarily submit to. And then beyond that, once we, if we're briefly a different person from reading or from anything, from prayer or from dancing, you know, if we're briefly a different person, that just reminds us that we're not fixed, you know, in solidity in the, the current person. And that's a hopeful thing. The change is actually something we can uh, do and we can even do it to ourselves, I, I guess. I don't know. I love that. See, that's me getting up on the top of the mountain singing, the, <laughs> yeah, singing the praises of fiction, even when I said I shouldn't. It's, it's hard but to resist. You, but you do have that a great reminder that um, after the golden age of Russian short stories came a period of terrible, terrible violence and <laughs> inhumanity. Bless you. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing, actually, because, you know, it's easy to think, wow, if only we could write like Chekhov. But, but right after this, and somehow you feel in response or reaction or in spite of there was this crazy revolution and cannibalism and torture and the whole thing. So it's, it's really, uh, you know, it's, it's mysterious, but those of us who do it, I think what we can say is if you pick up a story by a great writer, you you pick up a Toni Morrison novel, you pick up Flannery O'Connor, something happens to you, you know, and really if, you know, I could, I could have written a much shorter book by just saying, read that read beloved, 
watch your mind before, watch your mind after. That's it. You know. <laughs> Speaking of which, <laughs> what have you been reading lately that uh, you'd like to recommend? Well, you know, I, I for almost two years, I only read these seven stories pretty much. That so that was I'm coming out of that cave a bit. Um, I've been reading. Uh, there was a book that I read before this started that I still am thinking about. It's called Opening Heaven's Door uh, by Patricia Pearson. And uh, she's a journalist and she um, had a, an incident in her family where it where there was a kind of a moment of death communication from one family member to another, which is really uncanny. And she's a science writer. So she was kind of like, yeah, I don't know about that. But then she started saying, well, if I'm really a science writer, I should look at this phenomenon uh, analytically. Mm -hmm. And so she went around and talked to people about that. And it's a, st a stunning book, a hopeful book about the fact that maybe we don't know as much about death as we as we think we do um so that's something i'm going to go back and reread i'm reading don quixote at the moment which is huge um and then Car carlo rovelli has this book uh seven lessons in physics yes. and i'm reading i read that and uh i'm gonna have to go back to that one again because it's uh, have you read that one yes and it's, it's so short and yet it's opens the mind <laughs> so much <laughs> yeah so short and so hard. Yeah. But I but I love that, you know, that uh, there's another there's another book. Lisa Feldman Barrett has a book, seven and a half. Uh, I, I've got the title wrong, but seven and a half lessons on the brain. And both those two books, the, the Rovelli and the Feldman, Feldman Barrett, they, they both kind of make me think about something I say in the book, which is that we're we forget it, but we're really limited by our sensory apparatus. You know, we have eyes and ears and nose and all this, uh, and a brain that was designed just to keep us alive. It's, it doesn't have access to all the secrets of the universe. Of course not. <laughs> so this thing that we make with our mind, this projection about the universe, that seems so real to us is a complete fabrication. Um, and both those books are kind of uncomfortably reminding me of that at this very uncomfortable time of history. Well, George, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been very fun. <laughs> it was such a pleasure for me. Thank you so much for what you do too. It's really important. You know, I think we're gonna we're gonna have uh, a new well, we have already, but this network of readers that that you're an important part of is so um, vital, and I think it's gonna do a lot to get us through this uh, whatever's coming next. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review, and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.